Turn with me to John chapter 19. We're going to be looking this morning at verses um, 28 to 42. I'm going to move this mic, Lee. Didn't want it to explode audibly. Uh, before I read this, I, I do want to acknowledge right off the bat a couple of things. Um, first, I have repeatedly told you um, to search the scriptures to see if the things that you hear are true. And last week I mixed up the names of Joseph of Arimathea and Simon of Cyrene. Um, and that might seem like a minor thing. It was Simon who actually carried Jesus' Jesus's cross. But I want to take this task of preaching seriously. So if I mix something up, I want to make it right. So um, I don't want to just simply laugh that off. But the second thing I want to acknowledge as we look at these verses is that we are, we are not going to be able to do justice to this passage today. Um, we could and will at some point uh, spend some more time looking into Jesus' death, the atonement for sin, not to mention the, the meaning of the phrase, it is finished. We could spend some more time talking about the one who was pierced for our transgressions. We could see Joseph and Nicodemus, the cost of their discipleship at the end of this chapter. But regardless, there are probably two or three more sermons in these verses that I will preach at some point, Lord willing, but we're going to do an overview of these verses today. So John chapter 19, I'm going to read verses 28 to 42. After this, knowing that all was now finished, Jesus said to fulfill the scripture, I thirst. A jar full of sour wine stood there, so they put a sponge full of the sour wine on a hyssop branch and held it to his mouth. When Jesus had finished the sour wine, he said, it is finished, and he bowed his head and gave up his spirit. Since it was the day of preparation, and so that the bodies would not remain on the cross on the Sabbath, for that Sabbath was a high day, the Jews asked Pilate that their legs might be broken so that they might be carried away. So the soldiers came and broke the legs of the first and then of the other who had been crucified with him. But when they came to Jesus and saw that he he was already dead, they did not break his legs. But one of the soldiers pierced his side with a spear, and at once there came out blood and water. He who saw it has borne witness. His testimony is true, and he knows that he is telling the truth, that you also may believe. For these things took place that the scripture might be fulfilled. Not one of his bones will be broken. And again, another scripture says, they will look on him whom they have pierced. After these things, Joseph of Arimathea, who was a disciple of Jesus, but secretly for fear of the Jews, asked Pilate that he might take away the body of Jesus. And Pilate gave him permission, so he came and took away his body. Nicodemus also, who earlier had come to Jesus by night, came bringing a mixture of myrrh and aloes, about 75 pounds in weight. So they took the body of Jesus and bound it in linen cloths with spices, as is the burial custom of the Jews. Now in the place where he was crucified, there was a garden, 
and in the garden a new tomb in which no one had yet been laid. So because of the Jewish day of preparation, since the tomb was close at hand, they laid Jesus there. Let's just stop and ask God to help us again. Father, I pray that you would give us ears to hear this morning as we look at these sober verses. As we look at the actual death of Jesus Christ, your son. I pray that you would help us to understand. I pray that your spirit would be working in our hearts and minds even as we work through this. We pray in Jesus' name, amen. There is a fountain filled with blood drawn from Emmanuel's veins. And sinners plunged beneath that flood lose all their guilty stains. The dying thief rejoiced to see that fountain in his day, and there may I, though vile as he, wash all my sins away. Ere since by faith I saw the stream thy flowing wounds supply, redeeming love has been my theme and shall be till I die. When this poor, lisping, stammering tongue lies silent in the grave, then in a nobler, sweeter song I'll sing thy power to save. Those are the words of a man who was desperately clinging to the gospel of Jesus Christ, William Cooper. A man who was struggling to not believe the lies of his own melancholy, as they called depression back then, that those lies um, that his depression melancholy was telling him. Those are the words of a man striving to remember and trust in the promises of God. There is a fountain filled with blood drawn from Emmanuel's veins, and sinners plunged beneath that flood lose all their guilty stains, he wrote. Do you ever sing that? There's a fountain filled with blood. Do you ever sing that hymn in order to remind yourself of that truth, that, that sinners lose all their guilty stains? Or how about this one? Rock of ages cleft for me, let me hide myself in thee. Let the water and the blood from thy wounded side which flowed be of sin the double cure. Save me from its guilt and power. Jesus paid it all. All to him I owe. Sin had left a crimson stain. He washed it white as snow. Bearing shame and scoffing rude, in my place condemned he stood. Sealed my pardon with his blood. Hallelujah. What a savior. We could go on and on and on reciting hymns about this passage of scripture. We sing these hymns because of the truth that they remind us of, right? Because of the promises and the assurances from the Word of God that those hymns give us. The crucifixion is, the central, um, is central to the history of humanity. It is central to God's covenant and, and plan of redemption in and through the work of Jesus Christ. And so one thing that's clear and that we, we need to keep focused on is this. The death of Jesus on the cross was an actual event in time and space. It really happened. Jesus died on the cross and there were many eyewitnesses. 
The gospel writers, Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John, all give testimony of this, that Jesus died on the cross and there were many eyewitnesses. John himself writes as one who was there and saw these things. But John also writes not only to to address the physical nature of Jesus' death, but also to detail the, the spiritual nature of what is going on here in the death of Christ. Now, I want you to hear me very carefully. Jesus' death was not merely symbolic. His death was physical and actual, and it actually accomplished redemption. It actually accomplished the atonement of his people. But there is also much symbolism in these verses, and we're going to address some of that today. And the one thing that I want to point out, although we're not really going to go too far down this road, is that throughout this chapter, we are explicitly told that things happen for the fulfillment of Scripture, that the Scriptures might be fulfilled. Sometimes those things are done to Jesus, that the Scripture might be fulfilled. Sometimes Jesus says or does things that the Scripture might be fulfilled. And the reason that John points out these things is to offer further proof that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of the living God, and the Scriptures testify to him. And they also testify to the fact that our God is a promise-keeping God, a covenant-keeping God. He has done what he had said he would do throughout the Scripture that he has given to his people. Now, if uh, because of the atonement, this scene is the sort of the central focus of Scripture, and again, as I said last week, we really can't separate it from the next scene. We really can't separate it from chapter 20, his resurrection. But if this is the central focus of Scripture, one of the characteristics that we ought to notice, I'm just going to point this out here briefly, is the theme of the garden. Here's what I mean. The the biblical story, you probably remember, began in the Garden of Eden. Genesis chapter 2, verses 15, 16, and 17 says this, The Lord God took the man and put him in the Garden of Eden to work it and keep it. And the Lord God commanded the man, saying, You may surely eat of every tree of the garden, but out of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil you shall not eat, for in the day that you eat of it you shall surely die. And we know that Adam did eat of the tree, and because of this, his sin, he was, because of his sin, he was removed from the garden. But did you know, did you know that the Garden of Eden is actually going to be restored? Actually, it's going to be made new and better than the first garden. Listen to John's final vision in his Revelation chapter 22, verses 1 to 5, says this, Then the angel showed me, this is the very end of the book of Revelation. Then the angel showed me the river of the water of life, bright as crystal, flowing from the throne of God and of the Lamb through the middle of the street of the city. Also on either side of the river, the tree of life with its twelve kinds of fruit, yielding its fruit each month. The trees, the leaves of the tree were for the healing of the nations. No longer will there be anything accursed. But the throne of God and of the Lamb will be in it, and his servants will worship him. 
They will see his face and his name will be on their foreheads. And night will be no more. They will need no light of lamp or sun. For the Lord God will be their light and they will reign forever and ever. And how is that possible? How is that even possible? Because Jesus, in this passage, takes upon himself the sin of mankind and is brought back into a garden where he will defeat sin and death by his resurrection. Paul puts all of this together in Romans chapter 5. Just listen to, this is Romans 5.12. Just, I'm going to read just a couple of verses from Romans 5. Therefore, just as sin came into the world through one man, and death through sin, and so death spread to all men because all sinned. But then jump down to verse 17. For if because of one man's trespass, death reigned through that one man, much more will those who receive the abundance of grace and the free gift of righteousness reign in life through the one man, Jesus Christ. Therefore, as one trespass led to condemnation for all men, so one act of righteousness leads to justification and life for all men. For as by the one man's disobedience the many were made sinners, so by one man's obedience the many will be made righteous. Jesus' work in the garden here reversed the curse the curse of the sin of Adam in the first garden. Adam's sin brought death. Jesus brings life to all who would believe in him. And so with all of this in mind, there's some big picture things there. With all of this in mind, let's work through these verses, beginning first with Jesus' accomplishment. If I was going to title this section, I would title it, It Is Finished. Listen again to verses 28 to 30. After Jesus, after this, Jesus, knowing that all was now finished, said to fulfill the scripture, I thirst. A jar full of sour wine stood there, so they put a sponge full of the sour wine on a hyssop branch and held it to his mouth. When Jesus had received the sour wine, he said, it is finished. And he bowed his head and gave up his spirit. So far, um, in these, these last few chapters in particular, um, all of the other people involved here, the Jewish leadership, the Roman soldiers, the crowds, the governor, the disciples, the one who betrayed him, all of those involved in his arrest, his trials, his crucifixion, they have unconsciously played their part in God's eternal plan of redemption, but not Jesus. Jesus is not unconscious about it. Jesus is consciously, willingly, and obediently fulfilling all that the Father has called him to do. Now there is more work yet to be done. He has yet to commission them, for example. He also needs to restore Peter. We last saw him. He had denied Christ three times and left weeping bitterly. But these things and others really need to happen after the resurrection. But again, Jesus is playing a conscious role here. He understands what is happening. And his mind is so steeped in Scripture that he understands the, the relevance of all of these biblical prophecies concerning himself. 
Yet, yet that doesn't mean that when, it, when he says here, I thirst, that he was just sort of simply scanning through the, hanging on the cross, scanning through the scriptures to see if he'd missed anything. He's not manipulating the word of God to be about him. See, he really is thirsty. In fact, any man who had been beaten, flogged, had had handfuls of his beard pulled out of his face, had had thorns twisted into his scalp, and then was hung on a cross for hours under the the hot Palestinian sun, they would have been so desperately dehydrated that his thirst would have been part of the torture. But as I keep saying, there is more going on here. One of the earliest heresies, one of the earliest false teachings to come up in the church was known as Gnosticism. John, in particular, writes against this in his epistles. And one of Gnosticism's beliefs, there's a few and they're actually kind of hard to understand sometimes, but one of Gnosticism's beliefs is that all matter is evil and that only man's spirit is noble and good. And so Gnostic teachers taught that Jesus only seemed to be a man. But we worship a Messiah who was indeed fully and truly God, while also at the same time fully and truly man. And so when Jesus was on the cross, he genuinely thirsted just as any of us would have. In the physical torment that he was subjected to, not only did Jesus feel the physical pain, but he also felt thirst. And John tells us that Jesus said these words, as he said this, he had two things in mind. First, knowing that all was now finished. Jesus is aware that his suffering of God's wrath has about come to an end. It's now time for the unthinkable to come to pass. It is now time for the Son of God to die. So here's an interesting question. Why does Jesus make this statement, I thirst, at this point? Apart from what I've already said, okay, so we already know that he does actually physically thirst, but why is, the one, why is this the one physical discomfort that he brings up? He could have said, my head hurts. He could have said, it hurts where the nails are. He could have said, my feet hurt. My side hurts. Instead, he said, I thirst. Now, remember, I've said this as we've gone through this over the past few weeks, John actually doesn't give us very many of the gory details of his physical ag agony. Yet we know that he has suffered greatly. But in none of the gospel accounts, Matthew, Mark, Luke, or John, none of them does, does Jesus ever complain. Ne never does he say, ouch, that hurts. Stop hitting me. Stop whipping me. Because he opens not his mouth. The closest thing to a complaint, and I would actually probably label it a lament, is that we hear from Jesus on the cross. It's from Matthew 27, verses 45 and 46. 
Now from the sixth hour, there was darkness over all the land until the ninth hour. And about the ninth hour, Jesus cried out with a loud voice, Eli, Eli, lama sabachthani, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? We should note that for those three hours of darkness, Jesus is suffering the infinite torment of God's wrath on his spirit. Not just the relatively speaking, minor pains of the physical torture inflicted by the Romans. Now, relatively speaking, it was not minor pain. But compared to, compared to suffering the wrath of God. But now, knowing that all of this is finished, he gasps a hoarse, I thirst. His physical torment has now come to an end. The end of his sacrificial sufferings is before him. It is just about time for him to die. But John makes another statement here that that might or might not be in parentheses in your copy of the scriptures. It is in the ESV in my version. It says parentheses to fulfill the scripture, end parentheses. Now Bible scholars, so translators and commentators, they don't agree on how to best translate this phrase. It could be that it is attached to the phrase that comes before it, but it might also be attached to the phrase that comes after it. In other words, it could be translated as the NIV does, like this, later, knowing that everything had now been finished, and so that the scripture would be fulfilled, Jesus said, I am thirsty. In which case, if that's how it should be translated, It's possible that he is referring to to maybe Psalm 22, verses 14 and 15. That same psalm that that uh, begins with, My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? That's verse 1, Psalm 22, 1. Verses 14 and 15 moves on to say this, I am poured out like water, and all my bones are out of joint. My heart is like wax, it is melted within my breast. My strength is dried up like a potsherd, and my tongue sticks to my jaws. You lay me in the dust of death. Maybe Jesus is referring to that, lamenting. Or some think that he is referring to Psalm 69, verses 20 and 21, which says this, Reproaches have broken my heart so that I am in despair. I looked for pity, but there was none, and for comforters, but I found none. They also gave me poison for food, and for my thirst they gave me sour wine to drink. That one surely seems to fit. But you know, it also could have been about any number of of other passages that proclaim something to the effect of, my soul thirsts for God. Psalm 42, Psalm 63 both use that phrase, my soul thirsts for God. But this verse in in the King James It reads like this. It says, After this, Jesus, knowing that all things were now accomplished that the scripture might be fulfilled, saith, I thirst. J.C. Ryle, um, Bishop of Liverpool, he put it like this. He said, All is now finished in order to fulfill the scriptures. And so Jesus said, I thirst. But what I want you to see is the irony the fountain of life, in bearing the sins of so many, now cries out in thirst. 
The one who had cried out, if anyone thirsts, let him come to me and drink. And whoever believes in me, as the scripture has said, out of his heart will flow rivers of living water. The living water is now thirsty. He who knew no sin has become sin and for a moment is thirsting for righteousness. His soul thirsts after God just as his tongue sticks to his jaw. This is Jesus in his agony, knowing that all is accomplished because he has taken on your sin and mine. I thirst. Much more could be said about this, but verse 30 gives us the proclamation that this part of his work is done, it is finished. Yet this is no cry of defeat. This is not merely an announcement of imminent death. No, Jesus is proclaiming the same thing here that he had said in his prayer just the previous evening. In John, listen to the beginning of John chapter 17. Remember, this is just the night before. Father, the hour has come. Glorify your Son that the Son may glorify you. Since you have given him authority over all flesh to give eternal life to, whom, to all on whom you have given him. And this is eternal life, that they know you, the only true God, and Jesus Christ whom you have sent. I glorified you on earth, having accomplished the work that you gave me to do. And now, Father, glorify me in your own presence with the glory that I had with you before the world existed. He has accomplished the work that the Father has given him to do. It is finished. It is accomplished. He has fully and perfectly kept God's law. He was obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross, and has now given his life as a ransom for many. God has now shown his love for us in that while we were still sinners, Christ died for us. It is finished. It is accomplished. And with that, his last action is to lay down his own life. He said back in John chapter 10, verse 31, no one takes it from me, but I lay it down of my own accord. I have authority to lay it down. I have authority to take it up again. This charge I have received from my father. He bowed his head and gave up his spirit. Why was Jesus obedient to this charge given him by the father? He said back in chapter 14, verse 31, I do as the Father has commanded me so that the world may know that I love my Father. So that the world may know that I love my Father, Jesus says. Christ died to save sinners because he loves the Father. And time has now come for the Father to glorify the Son. Last week, as we looked at the previous verses, we saw that Jesus is the true King, He is the true priest, and we even see the formation of the true family of God. But now we need to see him as a perfect sacrifice. A perfect sacrifice. Listen to verses 31 and 32. Since it was the day of preparation, and so that the bodies would not remain on the cross on the Sabbath, for that Sabbath was a high day, the Jews asked Pilate that their legs might be broken so that they might be taken away. In these first couple of verses here of this next section, John gives us a brief description of a very gory detail. 
And what we see here is, it's shocking in its brutality. It's, it's even shocking in the sort of casual way it is mentioned. And yet as we've seen, even, even as this is presented here to a certain extent, it is an act of mercy. Here's what the law states, okay? The Jewish law in Deuteronomy 21, verses 22 and 23, says this, And if a man has committed a crime punishable by death, and as he is put to death, and you hang him on a tree, his body shall not remain all night on the tree, but you shall bury him the, next, the same day, for a hanged man is cursed by God. You shall not defile your land that the Lord your God is giving you for an inheritance." We know from what we have seen these past few chapters that the Jews especially, the Jewish leadership, the religious leaders, really like their law-keeping to be seen by men. And yet as Calvin, John Calvin puts it, speaking of this passage, he says this, In order to keep a strict observance of their Sabbath, they are careful to avoid outward pollution, and yet they do not consider how shocking a crime it is to take away the life of an innocent man. So consider this statement there from verse 31. The Jews asked Pilate that their legs might be broken and, and that they might be taken away. The Roman method for ending the life of a crucified convict was brutal. So because of their injuries, those hanging on a cross, including injuries, incidentally, of actually being nailed to a rough sawn um, couple of pieces of lumber, and dropped into a hole as the cross is stood up. Because of their injuries, they would have to, those crucified would have to push up with their legs in order to inhale. But the Jews were asking the Roman soldiers, basically, to take an iron bar and smash their shins in order to destroy their legs. Think of the brutality of that. They're asking him to take an iron bar. Can you, just go, can you just go smash their shins so that they die and then we can take them out of here so that our land is not defiled? They would then suffocate to death in shock and in extreme pain and agony. This is what the Jews were asking for. This is exactly what was done to the other two as they were crucified on either side of Jesus. But verse 33 says, But when they came to Jesus and saw that he was already dead, they did not break his legs. Again, we could spend weeks on these verses, but one of the persistent arguments against the resurrection is that Jesus wasn't truly dead. But the Romans are very good at this. They did this professionally. These soldiers knew exactly what they were doing. And so when they found that he was already dead and that it was not necessary to break his legs, they decided, we don't need to do this. They knew that he was already dead. The Romans are very good at this. Jesus was actually and truly dead. There is no doubt in their minds. And so look at what happens next in verse 34. But one of the soldiers pierced his side with a spear, and at once there came out blood and water. And then John adds this. He says, 
He who saw it has borne witness. His testimony is true, and he knows that he is telling the truth, that you also may believe. For these things took place that the scriptures might be fulfilled. Not one of his bones will be broken. And again, another scripture says, they will look on him whom they have pierced. John is telling us that he's giving us eyewitness testimony. This is John's sworn affidavit. And clearly this is important to him. I'm saying this so that you would believe. He saw these things as evidence that demanded a verdict. He was dead, John is saying. Now, we understand the importance of this is because he's now going to, and in another chapter here, John is going to start proclaiming that Jesus is now alive again. That's why he's stressing so highly that, that, that they understand, that his readers, that we understand Jesus is dead John saw the blood in the water as more than merely physical. When he writes of blood, think about these things, kind of think back through our study of John's gospel or maybe um, as Ben has been working through 1 John in Sunday school. When John writes of blood throughout, really throughout all of his writing, he speaks of the atonement for sin which brings forgiveness and reconciliation. So, for example, think of 1 John chapter 1, verse 7, which says this, But if we walk in the light as he is in the light, we have fellowship with one another, and the blood of Jesus his Son cleanses us from all sin. And then right along with the atoning blood comes the ritual cleansing water. So just a couple of verses later in 1 John 1, 9, If we confess our sins, he is faithful and just to forgive us our sins and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. Jesus himself had said in John chapter 7, verse 37, whoever believes in me, as the scripture has said, out of his heart will flow rivers of living water. So in pointing out here the water and the blood, John is directing us to believe, to believe in him of whom the scripture testifies, to believe in the one whose atoning death is the perfect sacrifice for sin, who cleanses us from all unrighteousness. See, the Old Testament ritual washings, the bloody sacrifices, they could not fully purify or cleanse. They could only temporarily cover. But Jesus brings the final justification and also purifies. He sanctifies his people. He makes us holy. Rock of ages, cleft for me, let me hide myself in thee. Let the water and the blood from thy wounded side which flowed be of sin the double cure. Save me from its guilt and power. Justification saves us from the guilt, not guilty. Jesus, the Father says, because of Jesus. Sanctification saves us from the power of sin as he makes us holy. Save me from its guilt and power, that hymn says. Justification and sanctification. That's some good theology in that hymn right there. I want you to... John is calling us here to look to Jesus. This Jesus whom you crucified, Peter and John will say in Acts chapter 2. And he appeals, even as he quotes a couple of passages of Scripture, he appeals to the Old Testament. This is the prophet Zechariah. 
Just listen to a couple of Zechariah's prophecies. It's from chapters 12 and 13. And I will pour out on the house of David and on the inhabitants of Jerusalem a spirit of grace and pleas for mercy, so that when they look on me, on him whom they have pierced, they shall mourn for him as one mourns for an only child and weep bitterly over him as one weeps over a firstborn. On that day, there shall be a fountain open for the house of David and the inhabitants of Jerusalem to cleanse them from sin and uncleanness. And they will call upon my name and I will answer them. I will say, they are my people. And they will say, the Lord is my God. Will he say that about you? They are my people. I don't mean will he say that about this church. I mean will he say it about you. He is mine. Would you say that about him? The Lord is my God. Let's just finish this chapter briefly because the scene now shifts from the cross to the tomb as we are brought into the garden here. Look at verse 38 to 42. After these things, Joseph of Arimathea, who was a disciple of Jesus, but secretly for fear of the Jews, asked Pilate that he might take away the body of Jesus. And Pilate gave him permission. So he came and took away his body. Nicodemus also, who earlier had come to Jesus by night, came bringing a mixture of myrrh and aloes, about 75 pounds in weight. So they took the body of Jesus and bound it in linen cloths with the spices, as is the burial custom of the Jews. Now in the place where he was crucified, there was a garden, and in the garden a new tomb in which no one had yet been laid. So because of the Jewish day of preparation, since the tomb was close at hand, they laid Jesus there. Now, often um, in the Roman process of crucifixion, bodies, the bodies of the crucified would be left for the vultures. It sounds terrible. It's as bad or even worse than you can think. They would just leave them there. They would leave them to rot. They would leave them to serve as a warning and a reminder of just who is in charge around here. Yet in this case, Pilate gives two specific men permission for Jesus to be taken down and buried. Those men were Joseph of Arimathea and Nicodemus. Again, we're not going to take the time to look into these two men today. We will at some point. I do think that they are worth studying. But what I want to point out today is this. This is not the work of cowards. This is not the work of cowards. This is the work of worshipers. This is the work of worshipers of Jesus. I believe that this is the fruit of repentance in the lives of these men. Joseph had been a secret disciple for fear of the Jews, and Nicodemus had come to Jesus at night, chapter 3 tells us about that, admitting that, chapter 3 says that he admits that he knew that Jesus was a teacher sent from God. Joseph goes to Pilate to ask for Jesus' body. No more secret discipleship. Well, Nicodemus brings, some versions say, 100 pounds. So somewhere between 75 and 100 pounds of spices and ointment to prepare the body for burial. Do you know how much those cost? 
When Jesus was anointed with a pound, it cost a year's wages. This cost somewhere between 75 and 100 years wages of a typical um, worker. So Nicodemus was probably quite wealthy. So combine this, um, combine this all with the fact that he was then also put in a new tomb. And it also says it was an unused tomb. In fact, it was probably owned by Joseph of Arimathea himself. Matthew tells us that. This is the burial of a king. These men are giving him a king's burial. They're wrapping him up as is the custom. They're anointing his body with 75 to 100 pounds of ointment. Not only is this a burial of a king, he's really dead. He's not expected to get up in a couple of days and just kind of wiggle his way out of this and somehow get out of the tomb. He's dead. These men know it. And they give him a burial fit for a king. There is so much more that could be said here. We are only just scratching the surface. But let me just close by saying this. As the king is buried in this garden, remember his words from John chapter 12. Verses 23 and 24. The hour has come for the Son of Man to be glorified. Truly, truly, I say to you, unless a grain of wheat falls into the earth and dies, it remains alone. But if it dies, it bears much fruit. These two men burying their Lord and their King appear to be bearing the fruit of repentance. It doesn't stop with these men. The fruit that Jesus will bear in his death is the fruit of repentance that leads to life. Man of sorrows, what a name. For the Son of God who came, ruined sinners to reclaim. Hallelujah. What a Savior. Bearing shame and scoffing rude, in my place, condemned he stood. Sealed my pardon with his blood. Hallelujah. What a Savior. Guilty, vile, and helpless we. Spotless Lamb of God was he. Full atonement. Can it be? Hallelujah. What a Savior. Lifted up was he to die. It is finished was his cry. Now in heaven exalted high. Hallelujah. What a savior. When he comes, our glorious king, all his ransomed home to bring, then anew his song will sing. Hallelujah. What a savior. Let's pray. Father, as we consider this, the only thing that we can say is thank you. The only thing that we can say is hallelujah, what a savior. That our God would love us so much that he would send his only begotten son. Whosoever would believe in him would not perish, but have everlasting life. That while we were still sinners, Christ died for us. We have to proclaim hallelujah, what a savior. And so as we come to the table, Lord, we are thankful. We are thankful for his shed blood. We're thankful for his body bruised for our transgressions.
We are thankful that you have loved us so much that you sent your son, that whosoever would believe in him would not perish, but have everlasting life. Father, we thank you. We pray these things in Jesus' name, amen.